Uh, I'm going to read the passage this morning, the whole passage, just a short passage, uh, six verses, seven verses, and then we're going to pray again, and then we're going to dive into this wonderful story uh, that Jesus uh, performs this amazing miracle on this day a few thousand years ago. Read with me, beginning in verse 11 from chapter 7 of Luke. Dr. Luke records these words. Soon afterward, he went down to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Pray with me, would you? Uh, Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for being our good, good Father. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that when we, as fathers here today, when we recognize the responsibility that we have as dads, as fathers, and we recognize that in many ways we're, we're not up to the challenge. We, we struggle. Uh, we can look to you and how good you are all the time to everyone, how you've loved your only begotten son who you sent into this world, and you loved us so much that you allowed him to be put to death and so that he would forgive our sins, bear our sins in his body, and so that we might have forgiveness in his name. And then he rose again, and now we have this new life, all because of you and him and the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. So we thank you for these things. I thank you for this passage, for this amazing, wonderful, crazy story. Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work through my meager words so that we might see something beautiful and true and amazing about Jesus today. And I pray these things in his worthy name. Amen. Any, uh, any movie fans out there? Come on, you, you, you know, you can raise your hands. You got to be, I know some of you are all over Netflix. You're movie fans. You know, space age fans, all that kind of stuff. I, I have to be honest, I, I'm, I'm probably less today than I used to be, but I'm still a movie fan, but particularly one specific genre of movies. I, I, and Janice, not so much, right? So I, I have to watch these when she's working or she's at her mom's. Or, but I, I like drama suspense. You know, like I, I really like that kind of movie, uh, especially action thrillers. If it involves espionage, spies, the CIA versus the commies, perfect. Like, you know, I, I grew up in that. I mean, that's, that would be for me. That's my kind of movie. There was a movie uh, that uh, played in around, I think it came out in the year 2000, uh, uh, starring Meg Ryan, you know, cutie from Top Gun, right? And, and Russell Crowe, right? Some, some gals find him pretty attractive too. Uh, so they're in this movie, it's a thriller, and it's about this, uh, he plays the role of this man, Terry, uh, who happens to be... Um, uh, he's a, um, a Secret Service agent, British, happens to be in South America. Meg's 
husband, or her, her, her character's husband, Tara, pardon me, Peter, is abducted. He's, a, he's an oil uh, businessman down in South America, and he's a, abducted, right? And so she commissions, she finds this guy, the secret agent, um, Russell Crowe's character, Terry, and, and commissions him to find her husband. And it's a great story. It's, it's, a, it's based loosely on a true story, um, many stories like that. But this is a pretty wise Secret Service agent. He, he has gone after and found people who were being held by rebels and guerrillas for ransom before, and so he knows his stuff. And so he's not prepared to, in this movie, he's not prepared to just, as soon as the rebels do contact them and demand a half a million dollars... Um, he's not just about to, well, let's meet and I'll give you the money. And you, no, he, he wants something. And you, you'll, you'll know it by the title of the movie, right? Anybody know what that movie might have been called? Yeah, what was it called? Proof of Life, exactly. In that movie, the, he demands a proof of life. He's not going to just hand over the money unless you can prove to us that Peter is still alive. That's pretty wise, right? It makes a lot of sense. And so I can't remember exactly uh, how they do that, but I think the rebels take a picture of him, pretty beaten and tired looking, with a daily newspaper with the date on it, right? And I think that's how they proved to this Secret Service agent that he was still alive. And so that's what you want. I mean, you want proof of life before you're going to give up half a million dollars. Just... I don't want to blow the ending for you, but it turns out pretty good. Um, it makes sense. So last Sunday, listen, we, we considered this. We considered the accusation that's laid against not just Christians, but people of faith, that our faith is blind faith. It's merely blind. You're, you're believing in something that you cannot see. And we saw how in the story of the Roman centurion, we have just one of many clear examples that faith placed in Jesus Christ is far from blind. It's far from blind. In fact, it is certainty. It's an assurance, as we saw in one of the texts from Hebrews that we looked at, of something that is hoped for. Now, ultimately, what would it be that you and I ultimately hope for in our faith in Jesus Christ? Lots of money? <laughs> Big house? Perfect husband? Perfect spouse? Right? Like, no. Ultimately, we are hoping for, our faith hopes for, eternal life. Amen? We hope that there is more than this, and what is even more than this is better and perfect, and it's with God, and that it is for eternity. But here's the deal. I even had a conversation with someone in the cafe this week. Um, Show me that. Is there proof of life after death? Can Can you prove that there is such a thing as life after death to begin with, let alone eternal life, where we live somewhere forever? So listen, as a Christian, I hope you already know that you have that assurance. You do. You should know that you have eternal life and that you will not die, yes, physically, but not spiritually, and that you will live for eternity. 10,000 years from now, things will keep on going in your life. You have that, and you know that it's absolutely true. Now, if you're here today or watching online, let me ask you this question. It's really important. Do you have that certainty? Like, I mean, really? Like, do, do you, every moment of every day, all the time, by the way that you live and express your life as a Christian, do you, do you really show people that you have that? I mean, how would you do that? But the bigger question is, do you have that? And the other question I could ask for some of you here today might be, do you want that certainty? I mean, 
Do you want that? Not, not just pie in the sky, wishful thinking, but don't, don't you want that certainty that there is life after death? Wouldn't you want proof of life? I certainly do. All of us know this for certain. All of us in this room and those watching know this for certain. I'm, I'm sure you're going to agree with me on this one, if not everything I say today. We are all going to die, right? You, you figured that out, right? That is coming, right? We all know that. It's coming for all of us. And so at that point, you, you, you've got to be thinking at some point when you're young, it's like, well, yeah, but I got lots of time. <laughs> like, I don't really have to worry about that right now. Uh, there is a bus, right? Could happen. You want to know for certain that there is a heaven, that there is a good God, that there is a place where there is no pain, where there is no suffering, where there is love and mercy and grace and relationship with the, the creator God who made all this beauty and who gave you breath and who gave you your life. That's the dream, isn't it? That's what we want, but it's more than a dream for those who are Christian. I think everyone does hope that that's true. Um, but I want to suggest this to you. I not only hope that, I know for certain. Now, some of you might be going, well, some might say, preach it, brother. And others might be going, yeah, okay, you're a preacher. That's why you're saying that. No, no, but I do know that for certain. Not just in my spirit and in my heart and in my mind. I know that for certain. Do you know how? God's Word. God's Word tells us that we can know that for certain. And I'll tell you what, every human being, and this is something we saw last week related to the Imago Dei residing in us, every human being in this, on this planet has the residue of the Imago Dei in them, in their heart, in their lives, in their minds, which is why people who don't even know Christ aren't even forgiven their sins do good. They think it's because they're good persons, but it's, it's because of the Imago Dei, the image of God resident in every one of us. Well, something else is also true. Here's how I know it. The wisest man who ever lived, who asked God for wisdom, Solomon, was not only given all the wisdom and become the wisest man in the world, but also the richest ever to live. He said this, and this is how I know for certain. Look at what it says. He said, he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. I love that. But the next part is the important part. Also, this is kind of like a throw-in. He has put eternity into your heart, into my heart, into everyone's heart. And so, look, we need to understand this, that everyone who's walking and breathing today, there's, there's this nagging thing inside of their body, inside of their soul, inside of their heart that is saying to them, even though they're resisting faith in Christ or in God at, at, at all costs, there's this nagging sense inside of them that this cannot be all there is. There has to be more. There just has to be more. And they know that. They know that for a fact. And so if you've ever wondered, even though you have found it hard to actually believe in a God that you cannot see, apparently, if you've ever wondered why you hold out hope that there is really a heaven, a better place, a life after death, well, you're thinking that way because God himself has put that impetus, has put that thought, that hope into you. God is so awesome. He's beautiful in every way. He wants us to know him and be with him, and that's why he's put that. I mean, you hear it in people's language, right? I mean, the last few weeks we've had a, uh, well, we, are, our culture has had a couple of very popular, very wealthy people, a man and a woman, uh, take their own life. 
Um, you know, one at 55, one at 63 years of age, 61, I believe. Anthony Bourdain, um, Kate Spade. I mean, they took their own lives. And, and you, you, you look online and people are constantly commenting and going, rest in peace, right? The language of our culture is rest in peace or they're in a better place now. That hope is there. The language of our culture says that. And so people, we have that in us. Most of us, most people at some point in time go on this spiritual quest, a journey, looking for the meaning of life, looking for purpose, looking to find out if it's at all possible, this thing that's going on in my heart and in my mind about this afterlife. Is it real? Is it real? And so that's where our text today is actually going to take us. Isn't that amazing? It's going to take us there. Now, some preachers, I've heard this preached about, you know, Jesus loves widows. Yes, of course he does. <laughs> he loves the fatherless. Yes, of course, of course he does. This text today, I'm hoping to show you, is really going to show us proof of life after death. It's right here in the text, and it is the big idea of the text. It really is. It's eternal life. So my hope for all of us today is that we will see this, that you will see this. Living life with the certainty of eternity changes everything. If you're living life with the certainty of eternity, then your life will change. The way that you live your life and the way that you lead your life will completely change, or it should or you're not living that way. So let's have a look at our text for today. We'll go through the story verse by verse and have a look at what actually happens on this day. It's amazing. And so in verse 11, we see, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. So Dr. Luke, of course, the writer of this gospel, opens the story by telling us that it's soon after the story of the Roman centurion that we looked at last week and the healing of his servant that Jesus takes off for this little town called Nain. So let's stop right there and ask this really important question. Why? Why, why is he going to Nain? I mean, some of us might be going, well, he's Jesus. He can go wherever he wants to go, right? I mean, but why would he do that? Capernaum is now his home. He's been booted out of Nazareth, right? They wanted to kill him there. So he's in Capernaum. Peter's house is basically his home away from home. And, and that's a center. That's a base. That town in that day, Capernaum was 1,500, 2,000 people. Nain had like 37 people in it. Okay, maybe less than 100, but very small town. What would... Why would he go there? What would be the purpose of him going there? And not only that, he's going there with his disciples, the 12, and maybe 100 or 200 true disciples that are really believing in him, and the great crowd that is now gathering to follow him because this man is amazing. He's healing everybody from a distance, just says, be healed 100 miles away, and you're healed. And he's preaching these amazing sermons about the kingdom of God. So Why? Why? Well, it's very important that we see this, very, very important we see this right away. The answer? On purpose. (laughs) Jesus is going to Nain on purpose. It's a part of who he is. And as I said to you last week, as a result of all the miracles, all the healings, all the powerful sermons that Jesus had been preaching, the buzz about him had spread far and wide, and now it was no longer about, well, is there going to be free sushi today, or am I going to get healed? The real question that everybody was asking is, who is this man? Let me encourage you, Christian, 
today and maybe for the rest of this week and maybe for the future. That's really the only question that all of us should be asking every day, right? That's the question if you're a skeptic or an unbeliever here or watching that you should be asking. Who is Jesus? Not not asking all the the critical questions or the questions that we have as, you know, typical uh, that people have, you know, like, well, let's let's talk about evolution versus creation, or let's talk about gay marriage, or, or let's talk about this or that, whatever, you know, dispute that we have with the Bible, right? The timelines of when things were made and when they weren't and the flood and on and on it goes. Though there's lots of good questions, there's lots of things that we should learn about, but really, if we're not asking the question, who is Jesus? all the time, we're not going to grow. We're not going to get to know Him. You're not going to get to know Him. So that's the question. Who He is, really? And asking, like, tell me more about Him. Read more about Him. What did He do? Why did He do these things? And so this, this is here. Let me go back to why. Why does Jesus go to name? Right? Let's get back to that. That's a good question. Why does he go there? Well, because, because everything, again, this is about who he is. This is a bit of a teaching about who he is, his character. He is God, but everything about him conforms to, in fact, who he is. So everything that he does is, is on purpose. This is not an accident. This, before the foundation of the world, God knew you, your name, who you were going to be, who you are, what you would do, what you wouldn't do. He knows these things. Before the foundation of the world, he knew Jesus on one day, right after the Roman centurion's servant is healed, you're going to go to Nain. And this is what's going to happen. This is on purpose. This should, this should amplify in our hearts and our minds a little bit about who Jesus is. Amen? This is on purpose what he's doing here. He's going there on purpose. So it's another important clue about who he is. So let me also show you this before we go on. You remember last week, uh, that the story was also about death, wasn't it? The, the man or the servant of the Roman centurion was on his deathbed. That was the big deal. That's why the Roman centurion was so ups, like concerned. He was like, something has to be done immediately. My servant is going to die. And so the only one who can help me help him is this guy I've heard about whose name is Jesus. I've tried everybody else. <laughs> Jesus. So it's about death. The centurion's servant was on his deathbed. He was about to die, and it's why he sent his friends. He healed the servant, didn't he? Which was a miracle. But why especially was the healing a miracle? Well, because he healed him from a distance. He didn't even have to be in the room present with the man, didn't even have to touch him in order for the man to be fully healed and restored to his service of his centurion. So it was amazing. Well, Jesus also knew at this point in the story of all these people, these crowds that are following, he knew something that they didn't know. And maybe some of us don't really know. And he knew this. Simply healing the man who was about to die isn't good enough. It's not good enough. More has to be done. Because one day this man is going to die for good, right? That we already established we are certain of, correct? So Jesus' answer is this. Let's go to Nain. I want to go to Nain because I want to show you that what I can do for you is not just heal you and save you from dying right now, but what I can do for you that is more important than that 
is what I can do for you when you do die, after you have died. That's the purpose. That's why he's going to Nain. He loves the widow. He loves her son who's fatherless. But that's why I propose to you in this text, he's going there. This is a clear example of the foreknowledge and sovereignty of God, isn't it? This is who he is. He knows all things. He works all things out to good for those who love him. So just imagine the timing of these two crowds coming together at the gate at Nain, just for one, just for one, right? I mean, just imagine that, okay? Like, there's a funeral procession. It's over. They're walking towards the gate uh, to go bury this dead man, and Jesus is now hiked, you know, by a three-quarters of a day journey. It's about 25 uh, miles, I believe, from Capernaum to Nain. And, and so he's hiked with all this crowd all the way down there, and they meet at just the right time. Just mere chance. Verse 12 says this, And he drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out. A man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So Luke's narrative gives us all that we need to know about this scene, about this setting. There's a funeral in progress, as I've said. It's ended, and they're now on the way to the burial grounds. Um, he's a young man. He's not a boy. He's a young man. Um, she's a widow, so he's fatherless, which means she's without her husband, and now she's lost her only... Do you see those words? She's lost her only son. This is not good for a woman in those days. To, to have lost her husband's one thing, but to have lost a young man who's essentially her husband to her, her provider, her caretaker, her caregiver... This is tragic. Sure, she has a community and she has a town around her, but this is a tragic situation for this woman. That the family is well-loved is implied, obviously, also by the size of the crowd. The whole town has basically come out for this. And that, again, was true in Jewish communities in those days. But at the end of the day, um, there's great sorrow here. We We don't hear the words, but you can imagine there was great wailing, there was great sorrow, there was great crying out. She would be leading the procession. She'd probably be helped along by some family members, hopefully, as she's mourning her son who's being carried behind her. At the end of the day, she's feeling incredibly alone. Incredibly alone. Now, throughout the Scripture, we learn that God, that Jesus, yes, holds a very special place in His heart for widows. For women, period, but for widows especially. The only time that religion, the word religion, is defined positively or expressed in a positive way in the, in the Scripture, in the New Testament especially, is found in the book of James, the stepbrother of Jesus, when he said these words. He said, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Some people think it's like to visit them all the time. It's probably a good thing. But, but in their afflictions is the key. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. Well, we pass over that one pretty quickly, right? I'm looking after widows and orphans, and I'm doing a really good job of that. But, <laughs> no, you need to keep yourself unstained from the world, which means stop sinning. Be doers of the word and not just hearers only. James's most famous statement, right? So, It goes on. I think actually when James says this, he's actually expressing what his brother felt right here in this story. 
He goes, it goes on to tell us this. And when the Lord saw her, there's a picture again, okay? The two crowds are coming together. There's a stop. They're like, okay, do we come out of the gate? Do you come in? Like, they're right there. And Jesus sees her, and we read, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. The, the language in the Greek is actually stronger than that, not intended in a, in a harsh way, but it, it, it literally would say, stop weeping. You don't need to do that. It, it, that's the implication of the language here. And so again, let's see the picture. Well, then he, pardon me, he said, it says then, then he came up and touched the beer, that's how it's spelt, or pardon me, pronounced, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. So again, the picture here is we've got these two crowds merging on the road leading out of Nain. One is the funeral procession. One is being led by the only begotten Son of God. And the other procession is being led by the woman who's just lost her only son. That's pretty significant that God would set it up that way. Of course, Jesus is followed by his true disciples in a great crowd, and the first thing that Jesus sees is the widow. He sees her crying. He sees her weeping. He has compassion for her. I think his words must have been comforting, but also a bit strange in the way that they're said. But of course, he's not chastising her. And, and we know he's not chastising her because he immediately acts, right? He immediately goes into action. He says, do not weep. And then he doesn't explain that. He just goes right into action. And it's shocking what he does. It's shocking what he actually does. And I think when, when he touches this beer, the crowd not only does the Scripture tell us that they stopped, right, but they stood still and they were probably very, very shocked. So a beer, just so you know, is, is, is like a stretcher. It's not a coffin. Um, and in those days, basically, uh, when a person who was deceased died, uh, their body was uh, prepared with spices uh, to keep the body from smelling and lasting, at least through the funeral service time. It was usually wrapped uh, in garments. And uh, the beer would be this stretcher that would have very long poles coming out the back of it and the front of it. And there was two purposes of that. That's where we get the pole bearers from, right? They would be bearing this this beer, but the other was so that they could be far removed from the actual dead body. Because anyone who touches a dead body becomes what? Unclean. What did Jesus do? He touched the beer. Didn't touch the body, he touched the beer. In that culture, that's exactly the same thing that he's doing. It's completely, like they would have been completely shocked. And again, we saw this earlier in the Gospel of Luke that, again, with Jesus, I mean, he's God. With Jesus, everything is upside down to what they think. You and I, we can become unclean by what we are involved in in our lives. Jesus, on the other hand, is the complete opposite. When he comes into a situation because he is pure, because he is sinless, because he is God, when he touches you, when he touches me, when he touches a beer, it is now made what? Clean. Mm-hmm. It's made clean. It's a beautiful picture. And so here it is. Here it is. Are you ready for it? Here's the proof of life after death. It's right here in this text. Do you see it yet? Have you seen it? Are you convinced? It's right here in this text. Do you see the proof? Jesus speaks to the dead man and says, Young man, I say to you, arise. And then we read this immediately. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Jesus then gives him to his mother. 
proof of life, of eternal life, is right there. It's the reason why Jesus did this. It's the reason behind the story. Do you see it? Has the Holy Spirit revealed it to you? Let me lay it out very easily. It's very simple. The man was dead, but he heard Jesus. If you're dead, how do you hear? You can't physically. Now, did he hear physically through his dead body, or did he? where was he? This is proof of life after death. It's clearly here in this text. It's beautiful. He hears the voice of Jesus. I want to be very clear here. We don't hear other voices. We hear the voice of Christ from beyond the grave. You know the story of Lazarus, right? When Jesus says, Lazarus to the stinky grave, the tomb that's been opened up, come forth. Dead Lazarus heard him. So where is he? Is he in the body or is he in heaven? And Jesus is calling him back. It's a beautiful picture of proof of eternal life right here in this text. And that's, that's what Jesus wanted to convey to them, wants them to see this. I think most of them missed it, right? I think most people today miss this about Christ because they just read these stories and it's, it's just a wonderful miracle about raising a man from the dead and giving him back to his mom, you know, and it's just, it's wonderful. Jesus is compassionate. He's lovely. Actually, Jesus is from eternity past and will be for eternity future, right? And that's where we're all going. Of course, the most significant proof of eternal life is Jesus himself. He lived. There's no dying, denying that he lived. Even the biggest skeptics in our world will say, look, and I can't argue with the fact that historically Jesus lived. I mean, like Julius Caesar lived, Jesus lived. No problem with that. In fact, most skeptics would, would agree that Jesus lived a good life, was a good moral teacher, and was a good man, and they crucified him. The Romans crucified him because the Jewish religious leaders of the day demanded it, and there was a trial, it was a mock trial, and they crucified him. Most skeptics would go that far. Most, not all. Why? Because they know the rest uh, the part of the story, right? They know that he was buried in the, in the tomb for three days like he said he would be on four separate occasions, and then on the third day he rose from the dead. And so that is our most significant picture of proof of life after death. Certainty. It's certainty. And if you have the Holy Spirit resident in you, you should know and be able to apply that certainty to your life. So now imagine the picture here. Imagine the picture at that day on that, that road right there at the gates of Nain, right? The, the mother, the widow, the young man's mother, turns around seeing Jesus touch the beer, right? And then he tells him to arise, get up, wake up, and, and immediately her son steps up. Can you imagine how nuts they would have all gone, how, how excited they would have, how, I mean, what joy. I, I can't imagine what the reaction would have been. We're not told exactly, but there's more proof for us in Luke's record of proof of life after death from the many who were actually there that day. It says in verse 16, fear seized them all. <laughs> and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. So, so why, why do you think fear would have seized them all? You see, again, we, we read back into this text, back 2,000 years into texts like this, and we're like, it's amazing, it's wonderful, it's awesome. It's Jesus. Like, you know, 
We, we, we don't realize that if Jesus was to appear on Cleveland Avenue right now, um, and if it's not the end of the world, he's not going to do that, uh, but we, we just don't realize that if he did, the, the power of his presence, the power of him being here would create, and, and the things that he might say and do, being the incarnate God, would completely freak everybody out on Cleveland Avenue, including you, including me. This fear came over all these people. Well, Jesus is God, obviously, then, and, and, and so what does this mean? They saw something that, really, they saw something that should not happen, that they'd never seen happen before. Nobody had ever seen anyone being carried to, being carried to the burial grounds, be told to get up, and they get up. They've never seen this before. It's shocking. You've never seen this. I've never seen this. The word fear here in the Greek is an interesting word. It's the, it's the Greek word phobos, which we get the English word phobia from. And so in the Greek, it literally means panic. It, it means panic and, and fear uh, out of something you don't understand and you, or you don't like or you don't want to be around. Christians are called phobic, aren't they? That's the root word that's used here. They have just witnessed a powerful act of God. And as I said at the beginning, the question they were asking is the only question that you should and I should be asking when we hear this story. Who is this man? Who could he possibly be? Who could he possibly be? They answered by first saying, or by first I should say, glorifying God. So some of the people who are there, they're, they're, they're glorifying God. They're like praising God for this, this healing, this resurrection of this young man. And some of them are actually calling him a great prophet or catch this, that God has visited them today through him. Not necessarily he's God. That's important. It's very important that we see that. So they're, they're still asking this question, who is he? As you know, you know the rest of the story. He's going to go on for another year and maybe uh, two months. And by the end of the story, there's going to be 120 left that are true believers basically, still have some doubts, but they're true disciples. The rest are all chanting with the religious leaders, crucify him, crucify him. I don't believe him to be God. I don't believe him to be God at all. So the thing is going to change, but here's what happens in verse 17. It concludes our story with this. And listen, look at this. This report, it's important that we understand there was a report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So I, I think today, if, if we had something like this happen, I mean, imagine today, <laughs> something like this literally happened. And with Facebook and Twitter, it would be across the world in seconds, right? Well, in that day, I mean, this thing spread rather quickly because the crowds continue to grow. They continue to grow. And yet, you know what? I heard it said just this past week, and I think it's true. I think it's true. It's a true statement. Jesus today is the most well-known religious figure in all of history. You can almost not go anywhere in our world today where there's a tribe that has not heard the name of Jesus Christ. There's a, there might be some pockets, but we're getting to the point where it's like everyone has heard about him. Many have heard about his miracles. Many have heard about his teachings. Many have heard about his compassion and, and, and that, you know, they've heard the story of his death, burial, and resurrection. And yet, and yet, they're still asking the question, well, who is he really? Who is he really? 
I think it's kind of uh, interesting. It wasn't until uh, late Friday as I was completing my notes, I thought, you know, just for context, I'm going to keep reading into next week's passage and see how this goes. <laughs> how do his disciples respond? Let me just show you the first two verses that we'll look at next Sunday. The disciples of John reported all these things to, to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one or should we be waiting for someone else? This is his cousin, John the Baptist, the forerunner, who knows full well who Jesus claims to be. But he's asking the question after the report. Are you still asking that question today? Still asking that question today? Who really is he? Is he really Lord of all? Is he really Lord of me? The answer is right before us, isn't it? I find that really amazing. Are you the one? <laughs> ah, I love John the Baptist. It's a good question. Next week we'll find out more about that question. So, one more time. Why did Jesus head down to the little town of Nain with his disciples and a great crowd? Well, he had an appointment, didn't he? He had a specific appointment with a widow and a dead man and a great crowd. He'd proven over and over again that he had the power, the ability, and the will to heal every disease. Thankfully, however, <laughs> there are two enemies that we all have that he came to deal with once and for all, and those enemies are sin and death. Well, today we've seen that he's dealt with death. He will deal with your death, your physical death. If you placed your faith and trust in him, you're secure. Your future is certain. Amen? And we know from the cross and we know from the gospel that he is taking care of your sin too. And so the new birth, the new life is guaranteed. So this trip to, to Nain was on purpose. And the purpose that Jesus had in mind went far beyond bringing this one man back from the dead and giving him back to his mother. The purpose was so that everyone there and everyone here hearing this story would have certainty about who he is. He wants you to trust him completely. And so the question again today is, do you have that certainty here today? Do you have it? You can. You can have that certainty. Place your faith and trust in this man and this man alone. Do that today. Know him. Really know him. Not just about him. Know him. Read about him. Listen to his words. And if you do, just like those who saw him resurrected from the dead and believed, it will change everything in your life. And if you're thinking that, yeah, Alex, and I, I know I've got fire insurance. I know I'm saved from that other place, and I'm going to go with God one day and be with him, and it's all going to be wonderful and all going to be perfect, all going to be beautiful. But right now, my life, you know, as a Christian, I'm struggling. I don't know, you know, you don't know him well enough. You need to know him and be known by him. And so that's why I've said living life with the certainty of eternity changes everything. How you ask? Well, first, being forgiven and knowing you're forgiven and you have peace with God, that provides a life that is wonderful and marvelous and provides a great deal of certainty, but it also is the beginning of the transformation in you and your life by knowing Him and Him knowing you better. 
that will lead you to becoming the kind of person that He wants to make you into. And secondly, you will know that your future is certain. No matter what comes your way, the ember of the knowledge of eternity that God has placed in your heart will take over your whole heart. Can you imagine how differently you might live if that were true? Can you imagine that? Maybe try this starting today. Two things. Maybe try this starting today. Every time you find yourself in a situation where you are unsatisfied with whatever, your lack of a healthy bank account, uh, your lack of a house, your spouse or a lack of spouse, your whatever, Christian, remind yourself of this. Remind yourself of this. John 14. Jesus has gone to prepare a mansion for you. Your inheritance is like... I don't care how wealthy your parents are, and they're probably going to spend it before they die anyway. Uh, Your inheritance in Christ in heaven is beyond belief. It's beyond belief. He's gone to prepare this mansion for you and I, and 10,000 years from now, all the things that I struggle with today will be faint memories. All the things that you struggle with today will be meaningless 10,000 years from now. So ask yourself this today. In prayer, what would change, what could change, if I really and truly trusted Jesus with my life and my eternity? What could and would change? As we go to prayer right now, ask him, what one thing, what one thing today? Pray with me, would you?